This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia, Reformed Forum's look at church history. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 12. And today we are continuing our series on J. Gresham Machen, taught by Dr. Daryl Hart at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Today's lesson is titled, The Fight Against Liberalism, Round Number 2, Foreign Missions. Still in this uh, series on Machen and um, the fights in which he was engaged during the 20s and 30s, looking forward to um, how this bears upon the OPC, which I still hope to get to. But um, today we want to look at <clears throat> the fight against liberalism, round two. Uh, this is the one that happened in the 1930s. And... Um, involved the controversy over foreign missions, um, which is really coming, bringing the OPC much more into um, into the camera frame uh, because of the controversy over missions is what eventually did lead to the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, but it's also following on um, the heels of uh, Drew's presentation about sin and its corruption, we can see the effects of sin and its corruption on the uh, Presbyterian Church very much in today's lesson. Um, So sin does still very much afflict um, God's saints and his church, unfortunately. Um, Now, we have been looking at different battles that Machen fought. We looked at Christ and culture. We looked at ecumenism with the plan of organic union in 1920. We looked at liberalism in his important book, Christianity and Liberalism, in 1923. We looked at uh, his opposition to false optimism uh, and his critique of that with some uh, things he wrote in 1925. And we looked also um, several weeks ago, last time we met, about at Machen's uh, fight with tyranny, both in the civil sphere, looking at his particular uh, political views, and then also in the ecclesiastical sphere, leading to the um, reorganization of Princeton Seminary and the founding of Westminster Seminary in 1929. So that leads to a question, where is the Presbyterian Church, say, now, after the reorganization of Princeton and the founding of Westminster? Um, and particularly, what, where, where are conservatives in all this? Um, one thing I think it's fair to say is that conservatives are on the run. Um, the, the, the battles of the 1920s indicated that criticism of ministers in good standing within the church is not acceptable. Um, and so if you're going to criticize anybody in the church, it has to be brought through the courts of the church. And um, if you look, though, at the history of the Presbyterian Church between 1870 and 1930, and you look at the ways that the courts handled these controversies, um, particularly the the court of the Presbytery of New York, you wouldn't have a lot of confidence in the church. In the 1890s, we haven't covered it in this series, but in the 1890s, there was a trial against Charles Briggs, an Old Testament professor at Union Seminary that didn't work out too well. It led to the founding or the the reorganization of Union Seminary as an independent school so that it could train liberals for the Presbyterian Church. And in the 1920s, um, despite 
efforts to work through the courts of the church and bring various reforms to the Presbytery of New York, particularly, um, all of those means were ineffective. And in fact, almost the reverse happened, that conservatives were blamed for the controversy in the church as opposed to some sort of um, disapproval of liberals or liberalism. So it's not clear what conservatives are to do, which is why I have this excerpt from a piece that Machen wrote in 1930, The Future for Calvinism in the Presbyterian Church USA. He wrote this for the banner, which was the denominational weekly of the Christian Reformed Church, and he was trying to educate people there about what was going on in the PCUSA. He was also trying to make a pitch for Westminster Seminary. So um, he starts off talking about um, what's going on here in the church. So let me read these first two paragraphs. The future of Calvinism within the PCUSA is certainly, from the point of view of human probabilities, exceedingly dark. So he's not optimistic as Westminster starting out in 1929-1930. The creed of the church remains indeed Calvinistic, being the Westminster Confession of Faith. And every candidate for the ministry or eldership is required to subscribe solemnly to that creed. But both creed and creed subscription are constantly interpreted to mean practically nothing at all. The descent of what was formerly a great church to its present lamentable condition has been for the most part gradual, since here as elsewhere the destructive forces have been content to labor in the dark. At the most, a few landmarks may be distinguished on the downward path. Now, let's stop there before getting to this other paragraph which comes later in the article and just reflect that when Machen testified in 1925 to the special committee designed to, f- to, to study what was the controversy in the Presbyterian Church, Machen gave testimony to that committee. He identified five significant problems in the, in the Presbyterian Church as of 1925. And one of those was the plan of organic union in 1920. The second of these was the, was the preaching of Harry Emerson Fosdick, in 19, especially his sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, in 1922, the sort of opening shot of the Presbyterian controversy. Number three, Machen uh, mentioned the ordination of men in the Presbyterian of New York who doubted or would not affirm the virgin birth of Christ. He also mentioned there the Auburn Affirmation, which basically denied the confessional status of the Presbyterian Church because it interpreted the creed however people wanted to interpret it. And if you recall my annoying sort of contrast of theories and facts and doctrines, theories and facts and doctrines in that Auburn affirmation. And then fifth, the final uh, point that Machen made to this committee was that there was a general indifference among the boards and agencies of the Presbyterian Church toward to the gospel, to the evangelical faith. 16th century understanding of evangelical, not our 21st century understanding of evangelical. So that, those were the five things that Machen brought to the committee's attention in 1925. Well, what does, he bring, what does he go on to say in this article? It's not here in front of you. You have to take it from me, or you can, you can buy this handy book, um, the, the collection of Machen's writings, where this, this, uh, this article comes from. I mean, it's rep- reprinted in that article. And here he mentions um, a different, somewhat different set of um, landmark Uh, instances in the Presbyterian Church's history. First of all, he starts with the 1906 merger 
between the Presbyterian Church USA and the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. So Machen now is reflecting back and adding a new wrinkle to his, his litany of problems in the PCUSA, suggesting that he's beginning to look back and see problems even before the plan of organic union, which, which is where he started when he gave his testimony to the committee in 19, 1925. <clears throat> then he mentions the plan of organic union. Then again, he mentions Auburn affirmation. So he has three, um, three problems within the church. And then finally, in this article for the banner, he mentions what he calls the destruction of Princeton Seminary. The people within the church called it a reorganization. Machen called it a destruction. Um, and so for, for Machen, this was really sort of the last straw, the reorganization of Princeton, the loss of Princeton to the conservative cause, which is why he, why he, he founded a new endeavor, uh, took the lead in founding a new endeavor, which was Westminster Seminary in 1929, to perpetuate the mission of old, old Princeton. So then he, Machen writes further, and, and I have this uh, before you on the handout, it is indeed very strange that if the heart of our church is really sound, it does not react vigorously against such unjust and ruthless measures as, as, as the suppression of the old Princeton Seminary and also against the sad vagueness and pronouncements that came from representatives of the mission boards. But doubtful though we hold the optimistic conviction about the soundness of the church to be, that conviction is at least natural. And since God, alas, has raised up no Abraham Kuyper, he's playing to his Dutch Calvinist readership here, has, no, has no, raised up no Abraham Kuyper to lead us in the true path, many of our number are at present uncertain what our immediate ecclesiastical duty is. So, for, for those of you who don't know, Kuiper was the leading figure of a, a similar sort of church struggle against liberalism in the Netherlands in the late 19th, early 20th century, and he would have been very dear to the Christian Reformed Church and, and the Dutch Calvinists in that, in that communion. Um, but it's also interesting that Machen says here that it's very uncertain about what conservatives are now going to do. I mean, he's, he's admitting it, that they don't know what to do. He goes on, though, to say in this article, again, not in front of you, that he's going to at least work at Westminster Seminary and work hard to train ministers at Westminster Seminary who will continue to fight within the Presbyterian Church against liberalism. Um, so that's about the only strategy that conservatives have, although it's also interesting to note in that last sentence that I have in front of you on the handout that Machen mentions... Um, the mission boards, actually not the last sentence, but in that last paragraph, the missions boards. Machen had been concerned about the character of foreign missions particularly and liberalism within, on the, on the mission fields itself and also within the mission boards. Um, and if I had, if I had a, uh, a board up here, I'd put the name Robert Spear and I'd teach you how to booth when you hear that, that name. Robert Spear was the, um, the general in effect, the general secretary of the Foreign Missions Board. I can't remember what his exact, maybe it was general secretary. He was the executive in some fashion. And he was an acknowledged evangelical. I'll say more about him, God willing, next week. Um, but uh, Machen had interacted very, in a lengthy way in the 1926-27 with Speer about uh, the, the status of um, the Foreign Missions Board and liberalism within the ranks of foreign missionaries. So Machen is worried about that, but again, it's not clear that anything will happen, which then leads to the missions controversy. And this bombshell that comes out that I have here should be italicized, rethinking missions. 
um, also known as The Layman's Inquiry. This was a book published in 1932, and it was sponsored by uh, 15 different denominations in the, in, um, in the United States, funded by John D. Rockefeller, and it really was a study by laymen within those denominations of the work of mission, foreign missions in India, Burma, Japan, and China. And so they were, going, they, were, they were doing this study just to see how things were going, what improvements could be made, I guess, you know, what kind of funds might be necessary, et cetera. It was just a comprehensive uh, study, again, called Rethinking Missions or the Layman's Inquiry. And the person who edited and wrote the report was none other than William Ernest Hawking. Well, who's William Ernest Hawking? Well, he was the professor of philosophy at Harvard University. And, okay, that big, big deal. Well, I mean, how many Harvard or Ivy League faculty write denominational reports? I mean, it happens today that Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterian faculty or faculty at Presbyterian denominational colleges will write committee reports for the PCUSA. But at the time, in the 1930s and 1920s, you had Ivy League faculty who were very much churchmen within these major denominations. Now, um, so that's impressive. What isn't impressive is what this, what this report goes on to say. Um, so I have some excerpts from this report on the handout. Um, so in respect, first of this first, I can't remember which section. I, I'll find it if you really want to know. Westminster, the library at Westminster has a copy of this report. Um, it really is an amazing report in the sense of how bad the theology is. And you just get a whiff of it here. In respect to its theology and ethics, Christianity has many doctrines in common with other religions. Yet no other religion has the same group of doctrines. It would be difficult to point out any one general principle which could surely be found nowhere else. So Christianity shares all the same doctrines with other religions. But there is no need. It is a humiliating mistake for Christianity to contest priority or uniqueness in regard to these general ideas. So Christianity really isn't unique from other religions. And it was, it, we shouldn't try to sort of make Christianity prior. This is all in a report on foreign missions. As we were saying, there is no property here. What is true belongs in its nature to the human mind everywhere, which is also a very interesting admission, that this isn't even... That what the religions teach really isn't that different from what people themselves just think of. The human mind is capable of coming up with these doctrines that all these religions affirm. So then Hawking goes on. From this treasury of thought, however, Christianity proffers a selection which is unique. The principle of selection is its own peculiar character. Its individuality lies in the way in which it assembles and proportions these truths and leads to them lends to them, excuse me, should be clarity, certainty, exemplification, and therefore power. Its features, like the features of a person, are unmistakably its own. So Christianity has a face, just like all the other religions have a face, but Christianity looks different. Its face looks different because it puts the features on the face together differently. Okay, this is, this is the basis for foreign missions. <clears throat> now, it goes on in this section of the report to talk about the aim of missions. And so it Here, Hawking writes, the goal to which this way leads may be variously described, most perfectly perhaps in the single phrase, thy kingdom come. 
This is and has always been the true aim of Christian missions. Its detail varies as we learn more of what is involved in it. It means to us now, as always, saving life. It means representing to the Orient. That's not very culturally sensitive, but anyway, that was it. It means representing to the Orient the spiritual sources of Western civilization. So, the project of missions is about, in some ways, Western civilization. While its other aspects, technical and material, are being represented so vigorously in other ways, it means paving the way for international friendship through a deeper understanding. It means trying more definitely to strengthen our own hold on the meaning of religion in human life. Not on the meaning of Christianity, but on the meaning of religion. Should we try to express this conception in a more literal statement, it might be this. To seek with people of other lands a true knowledge and love of God, expressing in life and word what we have learned through Jesus Christ, and endeavoring to give effect to his spirit in the life of the world. So it's a cooperative endeavor. It's an effort to try to find common cause with uh, people of other faiths. It's an, it's, a, it's an effort to try to preserve or extend Western civilization, advance the cultures of these other places, and really to work with them. There's no antithetical um, impulse at all in this understanding of missions. So that's why it's a, it's a remarkable um, circumstance for conservatives like Machen in the Presbyterian Church that all of a sudden this report drops in their laps. They hadn't, they hadn't picked a fight about missions. This just came at them. And so, um, as, you, as you might guess, the controversy over this statement was enormous. Um, and the, the Presbyterian Church really didn't know how to respond. It did not respond very well. Um, the, the board of foreign missions responded to this report, since it was one of the co-sponsoring agencies of the report, it basically tried to say that we affirm everything in the report that is consistent with our doctrinal standards. And they just kind of left it hanging at that. Which, you know, makes it nice to have a doctrinal standard at that point, but without specifying those areas that the report has in common with the doctrinal standards, the board was engaging in some ducking and weaving. Um, the general counsel, which was a different, sort of like uh, some executive administrative body within the PCUSA, suggesting how bureaucratic the PCUSA was becoming, um, but the general counsel actually repudiated the statement. It said, this is an attack upon the evangelical religion. And for some reason, that perspective on the report did not become widespread within the PCUSA. And I'm not, it'd be really interesting to follow up on this, and I haven't done it. And if anybody here is a student and wanting to do further work, it'd be interesting to see if there were communications between the Board of Foreign Missions and the General Counsel saying, hey, could you guys knock off that language? Because they really had two different sort, sets of responses. And eventually, the Board of Foreign Missions uh, became the dominant response. It was to be quiet and passive about this and hope it would go away. What made it worse was that one of the PCUSA's um, more uh, celebrity missionaries, Pearl Buck, whom, I, whom I, I understand some of the women here have read her, her novel, The Good Earth, which was based upon uh, her experience as a, as a missionary to China, and I guess she won a Nobel Prize, of all things, for that, that book, um, which, no, I won't go there. Um, 
But Pearl Buck was home on a furlough at this point, and um, she was very encouraged by this report um, because she herself was a liberal and really had become disillusioned with with uh, foreign missions. And she wrote a couple of articles, one for the Christian Century, sort of the, the leading mainline denominational weekly, um, also one for Harper's Magazine about the report. And she said, if I can read this with my poor eyesight, um, in the old days, it was plain enough, our forefathers believed sincerely in a magic religion. They believe simply and plainly that all who sit and hear the gospel, as they called it, were damned, and every soul to whom they preached uh, received in that moment the choice for heaven or hell, or something like that. My eyesight's too bad for this very fine print, so I have to leave it there. Basically, though, Buck applauded the statement and said, um, the old rationale for missions is gone, in uh, this report signals a new reason for missions, but sh- even the, this, this phrase of magic religion suggests how far off that Buck was from an orthodox un- understanding of things, and she was on the rolls of the Presbyterian Church as a missionary. Her husband was also a missionary. So this is a further problem the Presbyterian Church it has, has to uh, deal with, a publicity problem, when one of your missionaries comes out so forcefully for a report that is so controversial. Um, and what's interesting, if you, if you remember back to an early, uh, I think the opening class, when I read some obituaries about Machen, Buck was one of the people who wrote an obituary about Machen for the New Republic magazine that was very complimentary. I mean, she admired Machen and his opposition to this sort of liberalism. Um, so that even though she ended up after, after the controversy over this report and over her statements, having to resign, and the missions board accepted her resignation with regret. They weren't really happy, but they sort of had to do it. Um, she, she saw that they were weasels in the way that they were handling it. She much preferred Machen's kind of forthright stand about it, even though she disagreed with him. So this was, again, a kind of separation that she felt needed to happen in the church. The church needs to go in a liberal direction. Machen thought it had to go in a conservative direction. And again, people like Erdman, Machen's colleague at at Princeton, who appointed the special committee of 1925 to study the cause of controversy in the church, was trying to keep everyone together. And it's impossible feat to try to keep a Buck and a Machen together in the same church. Well, um, they wouldn't... So after they got rid of Buck, then they had to worry about getting rid of Machen. Um, so um, after uh, this report goes on and after finally Buck resigns in 1933, um, Machen writes an overture, four-point overture, from the Presbyterian New Brunswick um, to go to the General Assembly of 1923 to try to reform the Presbyterian Missions Board. Um, that overture is actually scheduled for the spring meeting of 1933 at the Presbytery of New Brunswick, and Speer comes to debate Machen over this overture. And he really didn't engage in debate. He had a prepared statement, and everyone was hoping for a real showdown, and it really was just more of a kind of reading a memorandum to the church. 
So the, the overture failed at the Presbytery of New Brunswick, but the conservatives in the Presbytery of Philadelphia brought forward the overture to the Assembly of 1933, and it was, um, it was still defeated, as you might imagine, at the General Assembly of 1933. Um, and let me just read some highlights from the, report, from the uh, General Assembly of 1933, or lowlights, as, the, as is properly the case. So the General Assembly, speaking of the doctrinal statement of the, of the Foreign Missions Board, the General Assembly reaffirms its loyalty and complete adherence to the doctrinal standards of the Presbyterian Church. We declare our belief that while certain truths may be found in other religions, complete and final truth is to be found in Jesus Christ alone through the religion of which he is the center. We recognize the necessity laid upon the church as his visible representative upon earth to bring his full gospel to the whole world as the final hope. So they, st- they want to hold on to the faith, but they're not going to specify those ways in which that faith that they're adhering to is at odds with the, the, the report on foreign missions. And when, if you think about it, I mean, this is a... They're holding on to the Westminster Standards. Granted, they were revised in 1903, but they're still overwhelmingly Calvinistic. And you, you don't look at, think of Calvinism as a, as a kind of religion that's going to cooperate with, other, with religions around the world. So, again, it's, it's, um, it seems quite duplicitous for them to affirm their own statement of faith at this point. Secondly, they have a paragraph on the estimate in, uh, estimation of the Board of Foreign Missions. <coughs> The General Assembly is convinced that the work of Dr. Robert Speer, our senior secretary, that's the title, and his associates, and also the work of the missionaries in the various foreign fields as a whole, deserves the wholehearted, unequivocal, and enthusiastic, and affectionate commendation of the church. Wholehearted, unequivocal, enthusiastic, and affectionate. That's the way the sports support is supposed to be. We know that Dr. Spear stands absolutely true to the historical doctrine of the Presbyterian Church. Okay. Third, um, what it says about the layman's report. The General Assembly recognizes the profound interest in the foreign missions enterprise, which is evidenced in the painstaking and far-reaching inquiry, the results of which are stated in the volume entitled Rethinking Missions. The practical suggestions incorporated in that volume have been considered by the Board of Foreign Missions. The General Assembly is content to leave the application of those suggestions with the Board. The Assembly does, however, definitely repudiate any and all theological statements and implications in that volume which are not in essential agreement with the doctrinal position of the Church. But again, it leaves unspecified what that disagreement might be. Therefore, seeming to repudiate it, but not really saying what the repudiation might be. And then finally, it adds this fourth point. So again, conservatives are really the problem here. It's, it, it, the topic is the method of expressing criticism. The General Assembly recognizes the right of any and all individuals in the church to present, cert, to pre- present criticisms of the program and work of any and all vi- individuals or agencies which represent the church. The assembly, however, deplores the dissemination of propaganda calculated to break down faith in the sincerity of such represent representatives. 
it's an odd thing to say that people were attacking the sincerity of these people. They weren't, Machen wasn't attacking the sincerity of anyone. He, did, he didn't really care about their sincerity. He thought they probably were very sincere. That wasn't the issue. It was what they were actually doing or saying or teaching. Um, goes on to say, the assembly would remind every constituent of the church that there are orderly methods of procedure whereby through the established church courts, all such representations ought to be made the assembly disapproves all methods of approach which would contravene such orderly methods, but would remind the church that both in the common law of the land and certainly in Christian clarity, a man must be held innocent until he is proven guilty of any charge. So, again, if conservatives want to make an issue of this, they can work through the courts of the church. Otherwise, basically, trust in sincerity of all the representatives of the church. Now, it's quite interesting that this report also says that a man must be held innocent until he is proven guilty. Just remember that. That's kind of a basic law, law of uh, jurisprudence in, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and that's not exactly what happened to Machen. So the, the overture is defeated in 1933 to reform the Presbyterian Board, and this leads Machen to found another independent agency. The first independent agency was Westminster Seminary. The second is the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. It's a, it's a mouthful. Um, the IB, IBPFM, even that's not easy to say. Um, so Machen founds this board with, with 15 other, 14 other board members, um, founded in 1933, and this is the last straw or the camel that straw that breaks the camel's back for the Presbyterian Church. Um, and so immediately Machen's board becomes much more of a controversial issue than the, the report on rethinking missions. And um, and what the, the general counsel in 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 cahoots with the moderator, excuse me, the um, the general no the stated clerk of the uh, the Presbyterian Church Lewis Mudge, um, and if you ever go to the cemetery in Princeton, where so many of the old Princeton uh, faculty, as well as Jonathan Edwards and John Witherspoon and people like that are buried, it's a great cemetery, um, if you like to go to cemeteries. Um, uh, but Warfield is, is bar buried there with his wife, somewhat away from uh, the old, old place where a lot of the Hodges and Millers and Alexanders are buried. And it's, it's natural because... Warfield died later, but he's within, oh, a, a, a horseshoe toss distance of Lewis Mudge, which is just, just drives me nuts, because Lewis Mudge was really, the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church, was really out to get Machen. Um, it's, it's very clear, not from the work I've done, but from someone who's doing doctoral work at Washington State University, that, that this was going on, that Mudge was orchestrating um, ways to get Westminster and, and to get Machen. So one of the things that they started to do was to examine graduates of Westminster Seminary, whether they, at the time of ordination, whether they would be loyal to the, to the um, agencies of the church. And that, that language about four points, among them affectionate, regarding the church's boards this way, they began to ask Westminster graduates about this. And Machen was very upset that Westminster graduates would be examined this way because it wasn't part of the constitution of the church. You, you give them the straight questions. You don't add these questions unless you want to have a constitutional amendment that would require some sort of loyalty to the boards and agencies of the church. So the Presbytery of Baltimore began to examine um, candidates this way. 
And I think Mudge probably identified Baltimore because he knew Machen was there and he knew Machen's brother was there, um, even though Machen's brother was in the southern church and not the northern church. And they also be, they began to carry out this, this uh, way of invest, or examining candidates in the Presbytery of New Brunswick, which is where Mudge was also a member. Um, and then the Presbyterian officials began to meet between 1933 and 1934 and deliberate about the independent board, and they basically decided that the board was illegal. And they, decide, they finally met with Machen in the spring of 1934, just prior to the General Assembly, and presented him with the report that they were going to give to the General Assembly, something called Studies of the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, which basically laid out the rationale why the independent board was illegal. Um, and remember back, somebody's innocent until proven guilty. And the way you prove someone guilty is by having a trial. So a major point here is whether the independent board ever received a trial or not. So this studies of the Constitution that, that finds the, the, the uh, independent board um, illegal leads to the mandate of 1934. Um, and I should mention, I, I, I forgot to mention this. There is precedent for independent missions boards within the Presbyterian Church. Claire Davis actually told me about this. <clears throat> um, longtime professor at Westminster Seminary of Church History. He grew up in the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Church, which is it's kind of a weird-sounding name, a Calvinistic Methodist Church, but it's, the, it's basically the church in Wales founded by Whitfield and Whitfield's followers, and they were Calvinistic as opposed to the Methodists who were Arminian. And so they had, a, they had a denomination here in the United States. They were, so they were sort of Presbyterian and Reformed in their orientation. They merged in 1920 with the Presbyterian Church USA, but they retained the right to, have, to continue their own foreign missions agency. So there was, I don't, I don't think Machen was aware of this, but there was a precedent for having independent missions agencies supported by members of the Presbyterian Church. And in 1934, this mandate of 34 is saying that if you're in the, in the Presbyterian Church, you must give to the agencies of the church. Um, and it basically argued that giving to the agencies of the church is akin to taking the Lord's Supper. And if you don't support the agencies of the church, you're withholding yourself from the means of grace, as in not receiving the Lord's Supper. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a really remarkable report that finally took 20 years for the Presbyterian Church to, to tie down the knots. Um, because I, I won't get into that. If, you, if you're interested, it's really interesting sort of history that the Presbyterian Church in the 1950s finally realized that it had, it had kind of screwed up in making this, making this statement. And um, so they had to, to rewrite some reports especially with regard to Fuller Seminary and the faculty at Fuller Seminary who were trying to be um, members of ministers in the Presbyterian Church even though they were at an independent seminary. Um, so Machen objected vigorously to this report, as you might imagine, or the mandate of 34. He thought it treated <clears throat> uh, church gifts or church offerings as merely a tax to be assessed on members. Um, he thought that the General Assembly had no power to interpret the Constitution uh, authoritatively the way this General Council had. Um, he, <clears throat> uh, he, he objected to the fact that the mandate and the report supporting it 
was given at the last minute. You're supposed to have 30 days or so before of notice before it goes um, to the General Assembly. I don't even think that the report was included in the material sent out to commissioners that year. So he objected to that. He also thought that it contradicted constitutional provisions for a fair trial. He thought, again, he had been already condemned of doing something illegal without ever having faced a trial. And then finally, his, his, his most important point was the Protestant one, which was that the General Assembly had taken out of the pulpit the Bible, which was supposed to be their, their touchstone, their basis of truth, and substituted the minutes of the General Assembly. So they had put the word of man above the word of God. Um, and if that sounds far-fetched... Uh, there, there's this wonderful quotation that William Childs Robinson, I have here on the, on the handout. William Childs Robinson was a Southern Presbyterian New Testament scholar, much highly regarded by Machen and, and vice versa. He taught at Columbia Seminary in South Carolina. Um, and he wrote this, with a much more vague and less adequate understanding of what the word of God is, Karl Barth is indeed challenging the German church with the same question that the Machen case has raised in the USA church. Is the voice of the church the ultimate, or is it only penultimate with the word of God ultimate? Is not the word of God above the church judging her? Um, so it's really a remarkable statement because the Presbyterian church was eventually going to become very Bartian, and they would uphold Bart, and they would uphold Bart's Barman Declaration of 1934 as a sort of side of world history that they wanted to be on, and yet they, they themselves, at least from Robinson's perspective, and I think he makes a plausible case, were doing precisely to Machen what Hitler was doing to Barth. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that is kind of over the top, I understand, but um, when, you, when you boil it down to this basic question of word of God versus word of man, um, it, it, it could very much look that way. So, um, this... Part of the mandate of 1934 ordered presbyteries that had members of the independent board within their bounds to bring them to trial. So Machen was a member of the the independent board, and uh, he was brought to trial. He was brought to trial by the Presbytery of New Brunswick in 1935. The, The trial happened at Trenton. One of the first questions that the trial had to face, though, was the question of jurisdiction. In 1934... Machen, seeing what was coming, transferred his credentials to the Presbytery of Philadelphia. Um, and uh, it would have been a very difficult thing for the Presbytery of Philadelphia to try Machen because it was overwhelmingly conservative Presbytery, prob- probably by a two-thirds majority. So they probably would not have tried Machen. They probably would have defied the, the mandate of 34. Well, Mudge, with the help of others, found that Machen's transfer was not uh, in order they had lost the stub in the paperwork. So the, the question of jurisdiction meant that Machen was not in, pre, in Philadelphia, even though he had transferred, but he was, no, he was back in New Brunswick, which was going to give a much more favor, favorable hearing to the, uh, to, to the, the center of, um, uh, of power in the, in the Presbyterian Church. Um, then there was a question about who could serve on this uh, judicial Commission of the Presbytery of New Brunswick. There were Auburn signers of the Auburn Affirmation on this committee, and Machen objected to that. There were also uh, board members from Princeton on the committee. 
And Machen objected to that, thinking that they could not give him a fair trial since they already had certain understanding of things. That went away. So finally they brought charges against Machen. There were six charges in all, and they're really pretty um, um, sweeping. Do I, I have them here somewhere. Um, but basically charging him with insubordination and violating his ordination vows and, and not upholding his ordination vows, even lying uh, because he didn't uphold his ordination vows. It, it, they, they laid it on very, very thick. Um, and so the charges were there. Machen's uh, attorneys were ready, or representatives, were, counsel were ready to make a defense. And the committee, before Machen's could even make a defense, said that they would hear no debate about the legality of the mandate of 1934. So the only way that you could actually question this debate as the church was saying all, all along, was through the courts of the church. And here a court of the church said that we won't even question the legality of, of the mandate of 1934, even though the constitutionality of this law was seriously in question. So Machen could not even offer a defense of what they had done in the, uh, with the founding of the independent board. Um, and so Machen, as you might imagine, was, was fairly upset by this, he, uh, he issued a statement um, which said, among other things, that, uh, that the church had dishonored Christ before it dishonored him. Um, and I, I want to conclude with um, a statement. Again, many of these were too long to include on a handout. And, uh, but again, to give Machen the last word, I want to read from a statement that's also reprinted in this uh, selection of short essays. In the pretrial um, in, uh, meetings leading up to Machen's trial. Machen tried to explain the nature of his opposition, the reasons for the independent board, why the, the mandate of 34 was illegal. Um, but he also wanted to explain why he was being such a pain in the neck uh, and why he didn't just leave the church. So I think this is really interesting to consider. Um, the action, Machen, so this is from his statement to the Presbytery in 1935 before the trial. The action of the General Assembly, again in its meaning, is made clear by the addition to the manual of the Presbytery of New Brunswick is shown to be contrary to the whole tenor of the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church because persons who submit to it are binding themselves either to conduct which is contrary to common honesty or else to conduct which is an invasion of the plain responsibilities of a member or minister in the Presbyterian Church. Then he uses this hypothetical example. Suppose a minister obtains his ordination by promising to support the boards and agencies of the church, as he is required to do by the plain intent of the addition to the manual of the Presbytery of New Brunswick, and by the plain intent of the action of the 1934 General Assembly, the Mandate of 34. Suppose he later becomes convinced that the boards and agencies are unfaithful to their trust. Let us even take an extreme case. Let us suppose that he has become convinced that those in charge of the boards and agencies are guilty of actual embezzlement. That case, of course, is entirely hypothetical, but extreme case does illustrate plainly the principle that is involved. Let us insist upon putting the, that extreme case. Here is a minister who has promised that he will, as long as he remains a minister in the Presbyterian Church, support boards and agencies as they are established by successive general assemblies. Yet he's become convinced that these boards and agencies are positively dishonest 
even with the kind of dishonesty that is contrary to the criminal laws of the land. What course of action is open to such a minister? He is convinced that the boards and agencies are dishonest. The General Assembly is convinced that they are honest. What shall he do in such a situation? In accordance with this action of the General Assembly, and in accordance with the plain intent of the addition to the manual of the Presbyterian New Brunswick, only two courses of action are open to a minister who is in such a quandary. <clears throat> in the first place, he may, he may continue to support the boards and agencies which he holds to be dishonest. That course of action would plainly involve him in dishonesty. An honest man cannot possibly recommend to people that they should give to agencies which he holds to be dishonest. In the second place, a minister who is in such a quandary may withdraw from the Presbyterian Church in the USA. So why does it mention just withdraw? That plainly means, though, evasion of the solemn responsibility which he has as a minister. I really wonder whether those who advocate this action of the General Assembly have ever thought that this th have all ever thought this thing through? Do they really mean to tell us that just because a majority in the General Assembly has made a mistake one year and has placed in charge of the missionary funds of the church men who are dishonest, therefore a minister should withdraw from the church and allow that dishonesty to go on? I say that such conduct is an evasion of a solemn responsibility. No, it is the duty of a minister in such a situation to remain in the church and to seek by every means in his power to bring about a change in the policy of the General Assembly. Meanwhile, and this should be particularly observed, he cannot for any consideration whatever give a penny to what he regards rightly or wrongly to be a dishonest agency. And still less can he recommend to any other persons the support of such an agency. So Machen thought that he had a responsibility to continue this fight against what was going on in the church and specifically to fight these, these uh, not only liberalism and foreign missions, but then also the unconstitutional measures used to cover up the situation that was going on in the church. So that's why I think I have somewhere in the outline that this was Machen's duty and not a, a defect in his temperament, as so many of those who emphasize sincerity in the church were inclined to view Machen as temperamentally defective. He believed that there really, was, there really were laws and duties bound up with ordination vows and the constitution of the church, and he was trying to be faithful to those endeavors. So, um, I will, Machen was tried and convicted, in case you didn't know. He was, he was convicted of, on all charges, since he couldn't offer defense. Um, and we'll talk next week, God willing, about what happened after that. Um, there's not a whole lot of drama, but a little bit of a cliffhanger for you to come back. Um, any questions or comments? Yes. Is there a party supporting Machen among other Presbyterian ministers and leaders? Was there a party? Well, we, I guess in the previous weeks we talked about that within uh, conservatives there was, there was differences. Right. Right. Was there a Right. Um, there were, I mean, the, the support would be finally shown. It was a small group that supported Westminster, a smaller group that supported the independent board, and a smaller group that would eventually support the OPC. So he did have support. He had a fair amount of sympathy by some, but, um, but 
that the notion of uh, sincerity was so pervasive in the church that, um, and the notions of loyalty were so pervasive that I think many people looked at Machen as a rock thrower or a grenade thrower in some way. And so a rabble rouser, and it'd be best just to be rid of him and let the church move on. So, um, <clears throat> so there, it, it was a small group that would have supported him. All right, let's, um, let's close with prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to read some resources from Daryl Hart, please visit him online at oldlife.org. If you would like to listen to more from Reformed Forum, you may visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you will find links to all of our programs, just a wealth of audio resources available to you on all sorts of topics pertaining to Reformed theology. If you would like to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org. You can also follow us and interact with us on Twitter at Reformed Forum. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.